This is Stephen Foskett, the organizer of Tech Field Day and Gestalt IT, and I'm here for with the uh, Gestalt IT Roundtable podcast. And we are talking today about uh, Internet of Things and how the Internet of Things naturally leads to abandonware and how abandonware leads to security issues. So uh, joining me today on the Roundtable podcast, we have... I'm Dave Henry. Um, you can find me at Dave M. Henry on Twitter. I'm Scott Lowe. You can find me at Other Scott Lowe on Twitter. I'm Sean Tuline. You can find me just at S. Tuline on Twitter. And I'm Tom Hollingsworth. You can find me at Networking Nerd. And you can also find Tom at other Tech Field Day events because he is the organizer of all of our network-focused events. So it's great to have you here, Tom, uh, joining me. I think this is the first time we've done this together, right? Yes, it is, Stephen. So um, we are going to talk today about abandonware. Um, lately, there's been a lot of talk about um, a big rash of DDoS attacks. Um, somebody took down Krebs using a uh, massive, massive uh, denial-of-service attack. And what interested me, uh, well, one of the things that interested me, was the, the mechanism they used to accomplish that. And the mechanism was abandonware. Essentially, they found routers and DVRs, I believe, that were unpatched, and they turned them into a massive network of um, DDoS uh, initiators. And, you know, this came up again yesterday when we were talking to Jeremy Allison about the Samba project, because, you know, there again, um, there's a lot of this software out there that's running and hasn't been updated and needs to be updated. And if, of course, if, if they updated it to the latest version, they wouldn't have this problem. But with all these OEMs and all these internet connected devices now, um, it becomes a big problem. So, um, you know, Tom, why don't you start by just telling us a little bit about the, you know, the IoT landscape and, and, and how this works. Well, it's, it's interesting because a lot of the vendors now, the, the, the roadmap is, okay, so we build the gadget, and now the gadget has to talk to something, whether it be a cloud service or it be some kind of data collection point, because that's ultimately what they're looking to do with their with their investors, is they want to provide value, and that value typically comes from data collection. Uh, Nest thermostats are a perfectly good example. Um, they were able to sell Nest to uh, utility companies by saying, we can provide you better data on cooling in houses and actually back off thermostats to reduce load on the electrical grid at peak hours. And the electric company said, we're all for that. And so the problem becomes when that particular device suddenly is no longer useful because there was a, I, I believe it was OnHub. I'm not for sure if that was the actual name of it or not, but it was a product that Google bought. It looked like a little Sabra oh, hummus dish. And they killed it. And everyone was freaking out because they Well, had, they killed the service. Well, they killed the service, which effectively neutered the device because the device needed the service to operate properly. The entire internet freaked out because you just killed a product that we paid hundreds of dollars for. But it also doesn't become an attack vector. Because it doesn't work. Yeah. So, so do you face the backlash of the Internet, or do you create the attack force of the Internet? Yeah, and, and also the backlash of the Internet. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I've got products in my, uh, you know, in my, you know, quote, data center at home. You know, I just, uh, Pogo Plug just pulled the plug on their cloud, mm -hmm. you know, and I don't think they've updated that thing in a long time. I bought one just to mess around with it. It's still running. Um, please hack my home network, you know? It's not just the Internet of Things, though. I mean, if you think about going back 20 years, people are still running Windows NT. People are still running Windows 98, Windows 95. Those are just as bad as anything else that's out there. So I don't think this is necessarily a new phenomenon. I think it's just getting worse because the kinds of devices people are buying today 
are far more accessible than the devices that we had to worry about of, in yesteryear. But those things but, had automatic updates. If they were turned on, which they weren't always by default. And Microsoft, for example, is no longer providing updates to those operating systems at all. But they did provide them for a long time. They did, but so did companies I mean, like OnHub. While they were still active, they were providing updates to it if you enabled the updates to actually take place. So I don't think this, I think this is a new phenomenon. I think it's just becoming more serious because of the fact that we have far more devices than we had in the past. It's far more accessible for the common person to deploy, and they have much less understanding of what actually happens when those devices are kept up to date and what happens when those devices are no longer supported by the vendor, but they're still using them. Mm-hmm. Well, so I yeah. think it's an education issue as well as an issue of exploding um, uh, numbers of devices we have out there. I think the Internet of Things is really exacerbating the problem, like by orders of magnitude. Oh, yeah. Because now people in their homes, may, you know, where they might have had a PC, you know, and uh, you know, yeah, their phone and a laptop on the internet. Now they also have their thermostat, their refrigerator, their TV, their DVR, their VCR, Did you come some other house? neat little device, a couple other neat devices, six or seven tablets. All these things connected, it just increases the attack surface, and. People are not configuring their networks to provide the Internet of Things in a secure way. The target breach happened through their HVAC system, which happened to be connected to the same network the point-of-sale systems were in. So the folks got in through the, the heating and ventilation, but were able to get the point-of-sale system. The Jeep, Jeep Cherokee hack, they got in through the entertainment system, which was on the same internal network as the Jeep, as the Jeep control system was. Yeah, and, no, and so, not, not to mention the alleged you know, allegations about the uh, in-flight uh, entertainment systems being able to access With the, the Ethernet right. cable. Yeah. Right. right. So exactly. you want it. So because they're so easy to use, they become more of a problem because people aren't configuring their networks to provide from. They're just doing what's quick and easy because I want to get the benefits of the device. So I'm just going to plug it into the network. And with that attack surface increasing, so yeah, abandonware obviously increases the problem, makes it even worse because now I'm not getting regular security updates. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, so part of that is yes. Regular updates, patch management, sure, people need to be better about you know, staying up to date on some of those things. But let's look at the influx of cheap electronics from China. And let's say, let's take uh, home, wireless home security cameras as an example. Yeah, so I've um, got a D-Link camera, yeah. which is a cheap thing that hasn't been updated. But that's still a brand name. There are so many people that are just going to Amazon and see one that's $5 cheaper for a set of four from some no-name brand that we've never even heard of. And those will never get updated. Right, exactly. They're abandoned on day one. Right. And if they come insecure, and people don't know this, and they'll put it up and they'll, you know, set it up on their Wi-Fi, and all of a sudden they've got four devices on there that are just possibly inherently secure, have no vendor support, Probably the company isn't even real. It's probably registered to a vacant lot somewhere, and that's it. They're just loaded and ready to go, and now anyone can do anything. And, and your only recourse is to you know, go and buy a brand name one you know, when it's been discovered, if they even discover. I mean, how many people just set these things up, you know, set it and forget it? And that, you know, that, that, the reason I brought up the D-Link cameras is because they had that uh, exploit where you could uh, remotely view the cameras by just hitting a HTTPS website, right? And you could mm-hmm. see whatever the camera was showing. And that is still open. So that was mm-hmm. pretty well publicized. And it was patched by the manufacturer. But there are still literally tens of thousands of these devices that have not been patched because the owners either didn't know or didn't care. The other thing that's happening is we have people being given devices. For example, kids are getting Chromebooks all over the country now that they take home. And there was a Pennsylvania school district a couple years ago, a few years ago, 
they got in huge trouble because what was happening was the camera was activating on people's Chromebooks remotely or their whatever laptops they were being given the device. And people were being recorded wherever they happened to be, wherever they had the, la- the laptop set up, and that footage was being stored. So it's like they were being given devices that were purportedly be secure, but they weren't. Mm-hmm. And, well, so, and how about the VTech hack that, uh, you know, my, my buddy Troy Hunt, you know, pu- helped to publicize the fact that they had mm-hmm. all these, you know, devices that were storing all sorts of, you know, personal information about children and pictures of children. And, yeah. Uh, but, but back to the DDoS thing, right? I mean, you're right. Yeah. Uh, you know, Chromebooks, um, tablets, you know, cheap Android tablets, um, entertainment devices like televisions and DVRs, security cameras, and even routers. All of these things can be, it has been shown now, they can be massive Massive sources of DDoS. I mean, the, you know, the size of a potential botnet just went up by mm-hmm. a thousandfold. And even though each one can't generate that much traffic together, there can. are so many of them, right, Tom? I mean, yeah. That, well, that's the thing is when when uh, Akamai first discovered that Krebs was getting blasted with all this traffic, they thought it was you know well, obviously they were getting all the packets. They traditional didn't know. botnet. They think it's PCs, yeah. but it was four times larger than anything else they had ever seen. And for anyone who's been you know active in security and looking at things like low orbit ion cannon or the the DNS hacks that were happening a couple of years ago, you know when you see a, when you see a rough traffic estimate of 60, 70 gigabits per second, you're like, okay, I can understand that. And that's why companies like Akamai and, uh, and Google build their detection systems around that, because they know they can comfortably uh, dump that much traffic at a given time to let legitimate stuff through. But when you slam something with 600 gigabits per mm-hmm. second of DDoS... Yeah, people were, people were skeptical, even. Like, oh, yeah. No, this couldn't be 600 gigabits. That's I, twice I was skeptical. the size. When I first saw the published reports, my first thought was... They're off by a decimal point. They have to be. Yeah. And yet, come to find out, it was caused by DVRs and Mm -hmm. network cameras. And see, that's a huge thing that we haven't even discussed here yet. We all know the devices that we have to worry about, Um, security cameras or thermostats. But how many people have a DVR sharing system in their house? Mm -hmm. How many people have a smart meter connected to their house? Guess what? All of those have network uplinks. All of those are industrial systems that you don't touch that you don't manage. And if they're not patched properly or someone introduces a software bug that another person is capable of taking advantage of, you may not be able to fix that problem. And look at the attack surface growing even bigger because I wonder how many houses that have all of those things also have electricity too. Yeah. So here's what scares me about Internet of Things. So far, there's only been two documented cases of somebody hacking, causing physical damage. Like, you can damage computers, you, you can damage the data. Stuxnet was the first documented one. There was, a few years ago, there was an iron foundry in um, Germany where someone broke into the control systems remotely, cranked the heat all the way up, and overrode the control so nobody was able to shut anything down. They were able to get everybody out. No one got, no one got hurt, but the place was destroyed. Um, but now, with more and more things, device, physical devices, cars, other things, flight systems being connected the network, you know, the, the damage that somebody can do, not just to your data, but to mm-hmm. the actual things in the world, mm-hmm. starts to become frightening. Yeah, and, and more and more things are being connected. So the question that is begged here is, what do we do about this? So I was talking to, well, Justin Warren published a blog post and suggested that open source might be um, a, a help that basically if you've required companies to open source things, especially if they became abandonware, that that might help. Um, you know, Jeremy last night um, suggested a different approach. He suggested a technical approach. Basically, we need a new 
um, sort of a hypervisor that would limit the ability of devices to do certain things, like limit which network ports or network endpoints they can talk to and things like that. Um, what do you guys think? How can we fix this problem? I, I like the idea of once something becomes abandonware, that there's, the code is opened. Because at that point, there's no more benefit for the company. So it should be left up to someone to try to maintain that. But that's still not, that's not a silver bullet. That's a hope someone picks it up and does something with it. Well, and also, it doesn't address the problem of uh, updates. Because exactly. somebody would have to actually figure out how to update Right. Because just because the code is open source doesn't mean that the repository or the update server is still works. I mean, the other approach would be that the device only works as long as the manufacturer is around. So there's a regular heartbeat. So, I mean, I hate to say that because oh, that talk about making painful. people somewhat upset um, when things just stop working. But if the company goes under and the thing can't be secured, is it better for the person to be upset or is it better for the world if those hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of devices aren't there to be basically Cylons, you know, nuking planets. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's a great idea because it would work. But, but oh, suck. my gosh, it would be terrible. I mean, think about, like, um, we had an iFi card for Tech Field Day, mm -hmm. um, one of those Wi-Fi-enabled SD cards, and iFi let everybody know that, look, this is old technology. We can't update it to the latest Wi-Fi versions, and so we're going to disable it. It's going to be dead. And everybody freaked out. And they freaked out so much that the company abandoned that position and decided to uh, just, okay, fine, release the utility to allow it to still work locally and said, forget it. We're just not going to update it anymore. It's yours. Do what you want with it. Uh, same with the Yonhub situation. I mean, people were mad. Oh, oh yeah. They were furious. And they should be. I mean, in a case like that, it was bought and destroyed. I mean, there's no... Business-wise, that's, so, that's horrible to do to people. Mm -hmm. um, but... It's still going to happen, and uh, people are probably going to have to get used to the fact that things are going to stop working. I mean, basically, when you buy something anymore, as much as I personally hate it, That's you're true. buying a license to use the thing. You're not buying a license to own it anymore. And people are used to old things stopping working. I mean, you know, m apart from my mother, um, most people's vacuum cleaners don't last 30 years. You know, most people's washers people and People aren't running their so VHSs on. anymore. You know, exactly. I mean, the laser discs. You know, th people are kind of used to obsolete equipment breaking down and stopping. But the problem is, again, back to these IoT devices, you know, I bet the Nest thermostat will continue to function, you know, 30, 40 years from now physically if only it has, you know, date and time and stuff like that, that'll still work. Yeah. Yeah, most companies stop issuing updates just as soon as the warranty is up. You look at, think, internet-connected TVs, because we've had mm -hmm. TVs with an Ethernet port in them now for many, many years. You stop seeing firmware updates pretty much just as soon as the next model is out. Yeah. And, you know, you can see that in all sorts of things. If we had like, internet-connected cars, you know, now that that's being a bigger thing. What, when's oh, the warranty out in a mm -hmm. car? Three that's years? That's terrifying. It, right. But people are going to drive that car for 10 years and have this internet connected yeah. something or other in it. And the manufacturer is going to stop issuing updates after three years. You can already hack into non-internet connected cars. Yes. Yeah. Remotely. So that's, that's already scary. I, I think we need to do sorry. something before things get to the point of abandonware. We need to find a way of certifying an Internet of Things device as having some security, at and that least was minimal kind of security Jeremy's baked into the beginning. Right? <laughs> yeah. Limit what the device can do. Yeah. Or, you know, well, my background is higher ed, and one of the things that happens when they raise money for a building is they also have they also raise money for an endowment to support the building. Do, do companies have to start being either pushed or required to basically set aside a certain amount of revenue 
so that something so that they can do minimum uh, minimum viable maintenance for the life of a product that they decide to sell, like TVs. Well, that's an interesting idea. So five percent of the revenue goes into an escrow account, and once that company either no longer does updates or they um, they go out of business, then that money is used in some sort of an endowment type of you know function, functionality but, too. But how would that you work know? for these mushroom brands? It like would they suck. Call them, you know that that just you know pop up overnight selling you know but, DVRs or televisions or whatever. And then I think it goes back to his point about almost a certification process. And so people, there's a huge education campaign that would have to go on for people. It's, if you buy this and it says certified by the IoT Council, then your this product is safe. Mm-hmm. Mostly safe, unless it gets acquired and destroyed. That's actually a really positive idea. Make a, make an IoT council. You know, don't have it be the government or something like that. But just say, you know, look, you know, we're the council, and they they could do things like code escrow or open source. They could and financial you know, escrow. financial escrow. That is a good non technical solution to the problem. What do you think about the technical solution? Is it I possible? Think- I mean, even if you have standardization, it would just take years. I mean, look how long it took cell phones to standardize on a charging cable. They even if you haven't, have, <laughs> I, I mean, well, yeah, we're, we're still waiting it, for it's that. Fine, Wait, finally, all the Android, out. yeah, finally, all the Android ones have. Um, but but we're exactly, not we have about a Apple, standardization. But, but if you have this, but they came to this from creating a council, you know, in between all the various vendors here. And that's the same, you know, similar ideas. How, how do you get these vendors to come together and standardize on a way on this when they're still trying to we, beat each other into the ground at the same time? We need to educate the public about the risks. And if we get this council going, hey, maybe your participation in getting your device certified by the, that council is voluntary. Mm-hmm. But you need to know that people who've, who've been educated on the risks are going to be less likely to buy your device if it doesn't come with that seal on it. Dave, so that's that's I, a good idea. I love you to death, but that won't work because there are only two ways to motivate people. You got money. Greed or fear. And you know why there is a standard charging cable for all non-Apple devices? Because the European Union said, if you don't, you mm-hmm. will not be able to sell your phone in our countries. And even Apple had to get on board. Yeah, Apple had to create a mini USB to lightning adapter in order for that to happen. The only way that you're going to motivate those companies is to make a regulation that costs them money when they don't comply. And that's going to honestly have to be the solution. We can talk about being nice. We can talk about creating councils with escrow accounts and creating technology certification programs. But until there's some teeth behind it to say the next security camera you sell that has a default username and password that's not encrypted by default, that's not safe, we're going to sue you or fine you so much money that you will never be able to sell another device again. So is that the solution, government intervention? It probably is. It, it probably is, but the, the thing concerning there is, you know, we still run into all sorts of problems where the law lags behind. The laws have not kept pace with technology. We're still, you know, applying laws for written documents to electronic documents now. So I have a, a one final point that I want to bring up before we close this out. Um, Tom, you're the networking nerd. Um, is there a networking solution? Is there some way that we could modify the Internet? And I, and I mean that. Is there some way that we could modify the Internet to block these devices <coughs> somehow? Yes. So what we have, what, what actually is going on right now in a lot of networking vendors' uh, research labs is they are working on ways to prevent the target hack or to prevent... 
um, other devices. Uh, medical is a huge, huge IoT area because every one of those devices has some kind of network connectivity now. Mm -hmm. So what they're doing is they're using traffic profiling to say for a given device, whether it be an insulin pump or a thermostat or a, a, a point of sale system, what is, the, what is the default configuration? What is it going to talk to? So it's basic security. That device only ever talks to these two devices, and it only ever uses this much traffic bandwidth to do that. And if it violates those constraints, it's either quarantined or the extraneous pieces are dropped. So it would have prevented the target hack because never should the point-of-sale system ever talk to the HVAC system. It would prevent car hacking because never should the entertainment system talk to the control system of the vehicle unless it's maybe this one thing. The problem there is while that is a beautiful, elegant, wonderful technical solution, it's, it's for hard. enterprises. Well, what if we had some way of tagging traffic or something, of some way of saying, you know, this is thermostat traffic and shouldn't go out on the internet, or this is, you know... Uh, that, that, that's, that's a beautiful idea, Maybe Stephen. the solution is NAT, Tom. I love, I love where you're going with this, but allow me to bring up QoS, which has yeah, that's seven true. markings, and I still can't get the internet to agree on what those are. Well, Seven. Maybe the That's part the of it is to to work with the vendors. I mean, yeah. you look at uh, you look at Apple HomeKit. Apple HomeKit. Any device that you're going to register into that, you have to go and you have to scan that unique barcode and everything, and it knows then things like the IP address and all that stuff. So if that information can then be transferred to a router or something like that, that then says, okay, this is an Apple HomeKit device that is part of your Internet of Things and thus has this profile, you know, restrict the traffic accordingly. Because there is some sort of, you know, it's part of maybe the device registration process that you get the categorization. But the device does that because it's configured to work with HomeKit or whatever the home automation mm -hmm. system is. They don't do that out of the goodness of their heart. And in fact, having a device randomly walking around announcing what it is and what it's capable of doing is pretty much a security risk anyway. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's mm -hmm. true. And anybody who hacked it would just change that behavior Oh, yeah, the first and say, thing nope, nope, I can connect to anybody on the Internet. Yeah, I'm a laptop now. Yep. I can do whatever I want. Oh, well. Well, I guess we don't have a solution, um, but we do have the end of our podcast time here. Um, I very much appreciate all of you joining me uh, for this discussion. Um, it's been fun. I'm so glad that we have exposed a horrible, terrible thing that we won't be able to fix. Stay away from self-driving cars. That's all <laughs> I have to say. Thanks. The On-Premise IT Roundtable is once again brought to you by Gestalt IT home to IT coverage from across the enterprise. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at GestaltIT and at Facebook.com slash GestaltIT. Very original. The On-Premise IT Roundtable is produced by Rich Straffolino. That's me. Until next time, from all of us here at Gestalt IT, have a super sparkly day. <laughs>